right, good morning, familia. Just in case you were wondering what happened there, the text that we're reading in your booklet, in your booklet, in your little, is the ESV. The one we put on the screen is the NIV. So if you want to read them both together with the same translation, come back in the next service and we will fix it. All right? For those of you that are new to the church, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez. Welcome all to the church once again. Uh, if you're visiting for the first time, we would love to get to know you. So please approach one of us, use the QR code. Uh, we, we just want to get to know you and serve you in any way we can. Today we are in part four of this series that we have called The Greatest Story, The Story of God and His Bride. Uh, and basically what we're doing is we are walking uh, through the Bible together from Genesis to Revelation. And we're looking at the Bible as one story. One story, one single story in which God is in the middle of it, and his church, his bride, is part of that. And in this story, there are four chapters, the chapter of creation, the chapter of the fall, the chapter of redemption, and the chapter of restoration. Um, we could call these four main chapters, and everything in the Bible is going to fall into one of these chapters. Now, for the last three weeks, we have been uh, looking into the first chapter, into the first main chapter, the chapter of creation, and that's what we spent three weeks in the book of Genesis, uh, specific Genesis 1 and 2. And there we basically see this, and it's very important for you to remember this if you have been walking with us on this one. Uh, basically, there we see that by, uh, there we see God's original design for this creation. This is what God intended for this creation. This creation was supposed to be a creation that was perfect and harmonious at all levels. All relationships were supposed to be perfect and harmonious. So the relationship between God and nature was perfect in Genesis 1 and 2. The relationship between God and humanity was perfect in Genesis 1 and 2. The relationship between human beings, between human beings is perfect, and we see that in Genesis 1 and 2. The relationship between human beings and nature is also perfect, and we see that in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, why just take the time for, for, for me to remind you of that? It's because it is only when we truly understand and see how perfect God's design was for this creation, that then we can truly understand and see how destructive and damaging and inhumane and cruel sin is. See, it's only when we see the beauty of what God created, created that we get to truly understand and see how destructive and damaging and inhumane and cruel sin is. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The fall. It's actually the first part of this long journey talking about the fall. Now, this is how I'm going to do this sermon by God's uh, grace, hopefully. I'm going to make you feel really bad first. I have to do it. But then I'm not going to leave you there. So two points for today. We're going to talk about the fracture of creation and the God of the fracture. The fracture of creation and the God of the fracture. Now, before I start, I got a word for, for the, the tech team. I do not have a clock in front of me, so I have no idea how long I'm going to be preaching, just so you know. All right, here we go. Hey, a blessing in disguise. Point number one, the fracture of creation. Before we go into that one, I, I would like you to participate if you, if you want, right, if you want. Uh, I would like you to repeat the beginning of a phrase that a missionary a long time ago, his name was Jack Miller, wrote about the condition of humanity. And this is what he said. 
he, he would call people to do this all the time. He said, cheer up. You are a worse sinner than you ever dare imagine. It's weird, right? Cheer up. You are a worse sinner than you ever dare imagine. So just for the sake of making you uncomfortable, I need you to look at the person next to you and say that. Cheer up. You are a worse sinner than you ever dare imagine. Go ahead. Got it? All right, come back. I know it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel weird, but, but bear with me. Stay with me until the end, all right? Right at the beginning of the text we read today, we get introduced to the person responsible for all this chaos in this creation, the serpent, which is a manifestation of Satan uh, or the devil, which will be another name. And I don't have the time to give you all the theology about uh, the devil, how he became the devil, and all of that stuff. But I could give you some, just to give you some, some, so, uh, some uh, level of understanding here. According to the Bible, Satan was an, an angel at one point. And something went really wrong within him. That's what uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 says, and that's what Jude chapter 6 says. The Bible also tells us that in this, that this angel that became crazy and evil, uh, all that evil comes from within himself. That it was nothing that came from outside of him, but something that came from within himself. We don't know how that happened, but that's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible calls him, the father of lies. And, and for example, John chapter 8 says that he was a murderer from the beginning. He's always been that way after his first fall. The Bible also tells us in both uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 that this fallen angel at one point was the most glorious and powerful angelic being. But he got, he got filled with pride. And that when he got filled with pride, now he wants to be like God and wants to replace God. But because no one can be like God nor replace God, he gets Kicked out of the presence of God. And from this point on, his whole mission and purpose is to ruin everything that God created good, nature, and in a specific, something that he created very good, humanity. So if you ever wonder if the devil cares about you, he cares about you. He cares about your destruction, and the, and the biblical reason is actually very simple. Because you are created in the image of God, and he hates anything that resembles that God. Did you get that? He hates anything that looks like God and reflects God. That is the background of the story. And the Bible also shows, shows us that the way he messed things up is by accusing or bringing confusion, even mocking or twisting the truth. That's why the serpent is called crafty. So you know that picture, that image, when you get the devil, you know, in a red figure with horns and all of that. That's nothing like the, what the Bible says about the devil. Actually, the devil is so crafty that he could easily be sitting in the midst of this service, worshiping the Lord, doing crazy stuff when no one can notice. That is the context of the text. 
So I want you to see how this interaction between him and Eve go, goes, and why is it that, I, that I'm saying that he brings confusion and twisting the truth? So chapter 3, verse 1, Satan says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, we cannot read the tone in the text, but because of the, uh, the devil's personality, we can almost assume that when the devil is talking to Eve, he's bringing a certain level of sarcasm. He's almost saying something like, come on, did God really say that? How dumb is that? And see, he starts to plant doubt in the mind of Eve. And he worked. And I want you to pause there for a second because everything starts with a question. Everything starts with a thought. A thought that influenced the heart and a heart that influenced the will. This is part of the reason why at the beginning of all my sermons, I ask for the Spirit to illuminate our minds. So it moves and transforms our affections because if our minds and our affections are engaged, then our will will follow. That's exactly what happened here. The devil knows that that's exactly how things work. Everything starts up here with a question, a thought that influences the heart and eventually influences the will. And what I'm going to show you is that when sin entered the world like that, the first thing that happened is that there's a distortion of reality. From that point on, now we, the, the image of God, the, our view of God is distorted. The, the view of ourselves is distorted. The view of one another is distorted. And the view of creation and purpose is distorted. What God created everything beautiful and perfect here, once sin entered the world, everything is distorted. So I want to walk you through that. The first one of those uh, consequences of sin is this. The view of God is distorted. Look at how Eve responds once the devil has planted doubt in her head. Verse 3. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. But notice what she says after. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, I don't expect you to remember everything that we read in Genesis 2. But if you remember, God never said anything about the touching part. God says, do not eat of the fruit. He not once mentioned anything about touching. And this doubt, this doubt at the beginning, then now becomes confusion. And from the confusion, now he brings a lie. It's always the same pattern. A doubt, confusion, a lie. And this is the lie. Verse 4. Then the, ser the serpent said, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So I want to paraphrase that, that, those verses in order for you to understand them. The devil is saying something similar to this. Eve, and then I'm going to put myself in there, Hannibal. God is keeping you from what is best for you. He does not want you to be happy. He's a party pooper, a joy killer. 
God does not want you. God not, he doesn't want the best for you. God is selfish. God is not enough. What he gave you is not enough. He cannot be trusted. Isn't that crazy? With one statement, God is not enough. What he gives you is not enough. He cannot be trusted. Bruce Walkie and Kathy Fredericks, they both wrote this commentary in, the, uh, in, in Genesis, and this is what they said. Satan smoothly maneuvers Eve into what may appear a sincere theological discussion. But he subverts obedience, listen up, and distorts perspective by emphasizing God's prohibition, not his provision. Reducing God's command to a question, doubting his sincerity, defaming his motives, and denying the truthfulness of his threats. A distortion of the truth. He wants God's word to appear harsh and restrictive. How many of you have ever felt that what God wants from you feels harsh and restrictive? I have. Have you ever wondered why is it that the Lord did not tell Adam and Eve why is it that they couldn't eat of the tree? Have you ever answered that? Is there, a, there, is there a reason why the Lord does not explain why is it that he doesn't want them to eat this tree, this fruit of the tree? This is the crazy thing. The Lord does not answer. Why is it that the Lord does that then? And I think that the most biblical argument that I could give you is because he did not want a relationship with Adam and Eve that is uh, based on a kind of a cost-benefit analysis, you know? You know what I mean by that? That's when, when, when I tell you, please do this, because if you do this, these are all the blessings I'm going to give you. Or please don't do this, because if you don't do this, you're going to avoid all these problems. That is not the kind of relationship that he wanted with his people. The kind of relationship that God wanted with his people was a relationship based on trust. We trust him. And that's how Satan started to mess around with Eve. And I want to make the argument that this is the reason why you and I still struggle today. Because deep down inside, we still sometimes feel that what God demands of us is harsh and restrictive. This is part of the reason why many times, even as believers, we ask the question, why God? Why not me? And I, and I want to invite you to consider and actually make you feel that when you ask those questions, you and I, we are not trusting him. We are magnifying his pro, uh, prohibition and we are undermining his provision. We are doubting his sincerity. We are defaming his motives. We are questioning his goodness. God is not being good to you. That's what the devil says to Eve. Cheer up, church. We are worse sinners than what we ever dare imagine. Now, not only the devil tells him that God is not enough and that what he gives is not enough, but at the same time, the devil is telling her that the way the Lord designed her to be is not enough either. 
Two, the view of self is also distorted. Why do you think that he asked her? Don't you want to be like God? Let me paraphrase that one for you. This is what the devil is telling Eve and the rest of us. The way God designed you to be, it is not enough. You really need to be like God. It is not good enough that you're just a human being, very good before the presence of God. No, 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 no. You need to become a divine being. You need to know. So you have the power. Because if you have the power, you have control. You are not enough. Can you see the lie once again? And look at the effect of that thought in the mind and heart of Eve. Verse 6. She saw that the tree was good for food, delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Keep that word in mind. And she took, of it, she took the fruit, ate it, and then the text says that she gave it to her husband. And him ate it just as much as she, as she did. You know what I find interesting about that verse? Eve already knew that the tree was good. Because everything God created was good. Eve, to a certain degree, already knew that this, there was something delightful about this tree. Because God created everything delightful. But because sin entered the world and her heart starts to change. Now she wants to desire what does not belong to her. And she starts to desire to, re to be like God so she can replace God. Actually, she starts to desire something that will make her feel that she is somebody. Isn't that crazy? You know what the Bible calls that? Idolatry. That's the root of idolatry. It's interesting. I told you to remember, uh, keep in mind the word wise, because the word wise can also be translated as competent or capable or sufficient. That's what the devil tells her. If you eat this, you will be competent, capable, and sufficient. You will be enough. So follow the train of thought here. Satan tells Adam and Eve, God is not enough. What he gives you is not enough. You are not enough, therefore you need that fruit. You need something that will make you feel that you are worthy, competent, capable, and sufficient. Isn't that the reason why even as human beings, we are always looking for that person that will make us feel enough? That relationship that will make us feel enough. That position that will make us feel enough. That title that will make us feel enough. Whatever it is, always looking for that fruit that will make us feel enough. You remember the movie Creed? Talking about spiritual things? Rocky Balboa is now the coach for this young boxer, the son of Apollo Creed. And he's getting whooped. And he's about to lose that fight. And he's willing to risk his life because, and, he quote, and I quote, I need to prove that I was not a mistake. You know what's interesting? He went in and won the fight. And it's only a movie, but that's a description of real life, you know? Because yes, you won that fight, but you still feel that you're not enough. And you got to win another fight. 
and you still feel that you're not enough. And you got to look for another fruit and another fruit and purchase another fruit and accomplish other fruit just to realize that it's never enough, that we are always constantly trying to prove that we are somebody. That explains why we struggle the way we struggle. The text tells us that God was walking in the garden and Adam and Eve heard of or heard him or heard of him. And in verses 8 and 10, look at what happened. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And in verse 10, and I was and they were afraid because they were naked and hid themselves. Sin enters the world and fellowship um, is displaced by fear. And instead of enjoying the presence of God, now they are afraid of him. And instead of running toward God, they run away from him. And relationship with God is completely broken. Cheer up. We are worse sinners than we ever dared imagine. Not only sin introduces a distorted view of God. And a distorted view of ourselves. But in addition, we get the picture of a distorted view of each other. A distorted view of humanity. And there are two examples that we see in the text. The first example of this distortion we see between the relationship between the male and the female. You remember how we talked about two weeks ago, and we're talking about the image of God, and I'm saying that humanity, we all carry the image of God, and that we all have this value and dignity, and that when it comes to the male and the female, we complement one another, help or fit for one another, and that we need one another, and our gender differences are valuable because God gave us those differences to accomplish his purposes, that we better display the image of God together than separate. How many of you guys remember that? Okay, good, paying attention. But I want you to see how sin enters the world, and one of the first relationships that get damaged is the relationship between a male and a female. And this is a verse that we didn't, I don't think I included it there, but I'm going to put it there. I I put it on the screen, because this is a verse oftentimes ignored, even by Christians. This is verse 16. God says to the woman, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. And to the man God says, but he shall rule over you. So just in case you misunderstand and misapply that text, let me paraphrase it for you. To the woman God says, because you ate of the fruit and sin entered the world, your temptation, your inclination is going to be to not see a male as someone of value and dignity. Your temptation, your inclination will be to not see that man as someone that compliments you, as someone as that you need. Your temptation, your inclination will be to reject his protection, provision, serving, serve, and love. Your temptation is going to be to overpower and or replace him. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. That's where feminism comes from. But of course, God does not stop only with the woman. He goes to the man. So let me paraphrase to what God says to the man. 
Because you ate of the fruit and sin entered the world. Now your temptation and inclination without the power of the spirit is going to not see this female as someone with dignity and value. Your temptation and inclination is will, it will to not see this woman as someone that complements you, someone that you need. Your temptation and inclination will not be to naturally love her and serve her. Your natural inclination will not be to treat her with gentleness and care. Because sin entered the world, your temptation and inclination will be to rule over her, to use your position and your strength, not to protect her, but to abuse her, not to serve her, but to control her. And that's where toxic masculinity comes from, from that verse. There's a distortion of our relationship as males and females. And there's also a distortion in our view of humanity in general. And this is part of the reason why I included right at the end Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel. Pay attention, church. This is the first generation after sin enters the world. The first generation. And right from the get-go, you get to see how sin create a whole distortion of how we view other people. This is why racism, classism, all of that stuff comes from. So here you got the story of a brother Cain, that brings an offering to God. And another brother, Abel, that brings another offering to God. But because God sees not only the offering, but the heart, he was not pleased with Cain's offering. Now, this guy has a bunch of insecurities, and now he's super upset. So what's his plan? To get rid of his brother. And he does. He kills him. And you got to ask the question, how can someone take a life like that? Listen up. Anybody that hates anybody, anybody that kills anyone, is someone that first needs to do the, the cognitive process of dehumanizing that person so you don't see it as a human. The only way a person can kill another person is by first going through the cognitive process of dehumanizing that person. That's where violence comes from, abuse comes from, exploitation comes from, and cruelty comes from. This is the reason why humanity struggles the way we do. Cheer up. We are worse sinners than we ever dare imagine. Not only the... The view of God is distorted. The view of ourselves is distorted. The view of humanity is distorted. But also the view of life and purpose is distorted. Look at what happens in verses 16 and 17. To the woman God said, in pain you shall bring forth children. And in verse 17, and to Adam God said, curses the ground because of you in pain you shall eat of it. All the days of your life. And once again, if you were here last week, you may remember that I talked about the cultural mandate. That we are called by human beings to multiply, to work, and take care of this creation. But look at what happens here. Sin entered the world, and we're still called to multiply. But now that multiplication involves pain. 
So you could say that epidural, epidural is part of God's grace, and I would say amen to that, but it's still, still pain. How about work? He tells him, man, you're still going to work, and it's still good. But now it's painful and will never satisfy. To be honest, that's why I find it foolish when any believer thinks that you're ever going to find the job of your dreams. It will never satisfy. It will never satisfy. Sin entered the world, and God's beautiful, perfect, harmonious, fulfilling, and flawless creation is now fractured, broken. Sin ruins everything, and sin ruins everything. This is why the word sin has so many different words in the Bible. This is why as believers, not only we need to understand where our struggle comes from, but we must learn to hate sin. Not tolerate sin, hate it. And first and foremost, we must learn to hate our own sin. Let, let, let me help you understand why, why I'm saying that. The word sin in the Bible can literally be translated as to fail or to miss the goal. Meaning that it is because of our sin that we don't live for God, but the tendency is to live for ourselves. Because sin ruins everything. See, the word sin in the Bible can also be translated as missing destination. This is the reason why there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people going to hell every day. When we were created for heaven, we were created to worship. We were created to a fellowship with God. And because sin entered the world and ruins everything, now there's people right now in hell. See, sin in the Bible can also be described as transgression and rebellion. See, sin is the root of our disobedience. This is the reason why we have a hard time trusting God. This is the reason why time to time, from time to time, we doubt his goodness because sin ruins everything. Sin in the Bible is described as betrayal of our relationships. This is part of the reason why we break the heart of God. This is part of the reason why we reject his love because sin ruins everything. See, sin in the Bible is also described as, as iniquity. That means that we are crooked by nature. That the natural inclination of a human being is not to love God, but to walk away from God. That's why I find it so foolish for us to put our hope in humanity. Because sin ruins everything. This is part of the reason why guilt and shame exist. And this is part of the reason why Sin is so dangerous. Did you notice what God told Cain right before he killed his brother? Chapter 4, verse 7. If you do well, you will not be accepted. Or will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over and notice that the word desire there is the same word that is used when he talked to the woman about him 
her not valuing her husband. Now, I want you to see really quick. God does not say to them or to Cain, be careful. Satan is around. Did you notice that? Satan is always around. But the problem is not Satan. The problem is the sin in our hearts. Sin is like a lion. That's why he uses the word crouching. The word crouching literally means to lay down or lay low. Every time I read, every time I read this passage, the, the image of a lion comes to mind because that's exactly how that works. Have you ever seen a lion to about to destroy somebody? The lion is like, ah, ah, ah. No, no, he doesn't do any of that stuff. You know what he does? The lion just lays low. Look up. And waits. So if you're wondering how is it that Satan deals with sin, super simple. He waits. He learns what our sins are. And not because he's omniscient, because he's not omniscient. Only God knows it all. But he's a good learner. So he waits, observes, and then he tempts you with the things that you already have. So from that perspective, none of us could ever say, well, the devil made me do it. That's what the argument that Adam and Eve gave once God confronted them doesn't, doesn't fly. Why did you sin? Well, the woman you gave me. And the woman, oh, no, no, the serpent you created. No, 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 no. We sin because we have sin in our hearts. That's exactly how Satan works. Cheer up. We are worse sinners than what we ever dare imagine. Now, by now, by now some of you guys got to be super annoyed about that phrase. And you would say, why would this man, Jack Miller, write this phrase? Well, that's only the first half of the phrase, you know. Because Jack Miller knew this, that in order for us to be rescued, that in order for us to be transformed, that in order for us to be uh, truly, truly uh, uh, declared free from our slavery of sin, the first and foremost we needed to understand is how sinful we are. Because unless we truly understand how sinful we are, Jesus Christ is not needed. Salvation is not required. And his love will be rejected. So you want to hear what the second phrase, second part of the phrase was? Of course you do. Cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dare imagine. And you are more loved than you ever dare hope. Let me say that again. Cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dare imagine. And you are more loved than you ever dare hope. So if sin is so awful, how do we get rid of it? And this is the good news, church. You can't. But he can. And this is the second part of the text, the God of the fracture. I want you, this is why for me the gospel is the best story ever. And why is it that the gospel is in every page of the Bible? 
And I want you to notice what is the attitude of God toward the very people that rejected him, mistrusted him, abandoned him, and exchanged him for created things. I want you to see how is it that God, instead of walking away, instead of uh, giving us to what we always wanted, a life without him, instead of giving us to what our sin deserves, he moves toward us. And we see it with his attitude toward Adam and Eve. Look at what it says in verse 9. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? Was God really looking for them? Of course not. He is making the first move. And when he's asking the question, where are you? He is calling them to recognize what went wrong. No blame shifting, no excuse. Confess and repent. Right from the beginning of the story. He moves toward them. Not only he moves toward them, but look at what happened in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So here you have this couple that is naked and afraid, full of guilt and full of shame. And now God in tenderness, mercy, and love covers their guilt and shame with the skin of a sacrificed animal. Doesn't that remind you of something? And he doesn't stop there. Because look at what happened in verses 23 and 24. The Lord God sent them out from the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim with a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And the reason why all these verses at the end are so important because he tells you right from the beginning of the story that sin was not going to have the last word. That guilt and shame was not going to have the last word. That God would take the initiative to come and rescue the people that needed to be rescued. And that gets truly fulfilled when Jesus takes the initiative also. And he becomes a human being and he looks for all the Adams and Eves that did not want anything from him. And he comes to find a way for these broken people to come back into the presence of God. But to do that, he needs first to be in another garden. The Garden of Gethsemane, in which he's also tempted. Tempted to not go to another tree, the cross. Tempted to not go through the flaming sword of God, the punishment of God. But Jesus knows that there is no other way for broken people to be accepted and loved and redeemed and rescued. So in that garden, he sweats blood. And in the midst of his agony, he chose you. He chose you. And he goes to that cross. And he takes the sword. And he dies. And from that perspective, from a human perspective... That doesn't make any sense to me. 
Why would God do that for you and me? Why would God when I love broken people like you and me? Amazing love. How can it be that my king would die for me? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that he saved a wreck like me. Cheer up. You are a worse sinner than you ever dare imagine. And you are also more loved than you ever dare hope. And now you get the chance to respond to that by participating in communion. See, I think that communion is actually God showing us invisible form that we are more sinful than when we care to admit. But that his love is more profound than what we dare to imagine. So if you are a believer, this is for you. And the Bible calls us to participate in communion only if we have taken the time to repent and bring before him everything we are, everything we have done, as much as we can. If you're not a believer, this is not for you just yet, but I want to I use this as an invitation for you to surrender to the love of God, the one that did everything to bring you home. So let's take a few seconds there to spend time with the Lord. Now I'm going to ask you to please remove the side of the cup where you find the bread. And the Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And we are given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate. Now you may remove the other side of the cup where you find the juice. And in the same way the Bible says that Jesus also took the cup. And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This was the blood that I shared, shared in that tree. So whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. You may participate. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you are the God who does not walk away. 
but moves toward us. And not only moves toward us, but he goes to the tree to die for our sins because we do, we have taken the fruit that, that, that didn't belong to us. Why wouldn't we trust you, God, when you were willing to do all of this for us? Please, Lord, help us trust you and live for you. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus and the church says, Amen.